Richard, if you wouldn't mind praying for me, uh, because unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain to build it. So, brother, could you open up in prayer and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of the word? Amen. First Thessalonians, we mentioned last week that the Apostle Paul, who was sent on a missionary journey, came to the city of Thessaloniki, which is right on the seacoast, uh, a very busy tra- a place of transport, a lot of activity, and the Apostle was led by the Lord to go and preach there. And this is how he describes his arrival in verse number 5. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. We're going to read on, but I want to say, I have something to say to you. You heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that came to you not only in word. When you think of it, how is a church planted? How are people brought into the faith? You know, in Acts chapter 11, it tells us in verse 18, 14, it says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Peter has to tell his audience of people that, God was using him as a mouthpiece who was going to tell them words whereby thou and all thy house would be saved. When you think of it, it's something that it's through words that have been heard that have created in you something that you didn't have before, that birthed you, that brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. It says in the book of Job how forcible our right words, or how forceful our right words. You can't get any better words and any more words that are spirit-fueled, empower-generated than the Word of God. Paul says that our gospel came to you not in word only. Now, what does he mean, not in word only? Well, in 1 Corinthians 4.20, he says, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in what? Power. Power. There is something dynamic, powerfully about the Holy Scriptures that creates life in the soul of the believer. So when we're talking about the gospel, we have to ask ourselves, what is the gospel? I'd like to put it this way. The gospel is about the great God who sent His great Son to accomplish a great work to provide a great salvation that results in great changes. The great God sent the great Son to accomplish 
the great work to provide a great salvation that results in great changes. You could say, in essence, that is sort of what the gospel is. It is the gospel that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, and is coming again. And he is being proclaimed as Lord over all the earth, even over those who don't believe. So we can say to everybody that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. Everybody is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. When God sat him at his right hand, when he ascended into heaven, this was the glorification that the Father gave to the Son. He said, Son, sit at my right hand, not my left hand or sit near me, but to sit at my right hand. That's a place of authority. That's a place of power. This is the gospel that was being preached. Paul says, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's why the word gospel means simply glad tidings or good news. There's not any better news than the gospel news. We then have to ask the question, what does the gospel preach produced? Or what does the gospel share? Not everybody's a preacher. Not everyone's going to be in the pulpit. We know that. But everybody has relationships with other people, has communication with people. So every child of God has the capability of sharing the gospel with others. Sometimes I get phone calls and people ask me if I would go visit so-and-so. And I don't mind doing that. I love doing that. But I want to encourage those who sometimes ask me, who can do the very thing that I can do? Tell them about Christ. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. You have the capability. You've got the silver coin in your mouth that you can give to others as the payment to, for them to be reminded of what Jesus did for sinners on the cross. So let's ask this question. Now, what does the gospel preach produce? First of all, it produces nothing if you don't believe. Even Jesus, when he went into Capernaum, it says that he could do, he could do no miracle there because of what? Their unbelief. Unbelief dis counts the gospel. It X's the gospel. Not that the word of God falls by the wayside and is, is, doesn't accomplish what it's sent. It will always accomplish what is it sent. Even if it falls by the wayside or among the thorns or in rocky ground, it still will accomplish what God intends it to do. But there is no profit for those who will not believe the gospel. So what, what is the profit that the gospel brings to people? What is this good news that the gospel contains? I'm sure if I asked everybody, what does the gospel produce? Everybody would have some ideas, and I'm sure some of the ones that I'm going to mention, you would probably think of. How about this? Everlasting life. John 3.16, right? Has everlasting life. How about forgiveness of sins? That's what the gospel brings. If, if people don't feel the weight of their sin and the seriousness of their sin before God and the consequences of sin, ultimately that God will issue for sin, then there would be no reason for a person to repent and obey. But what does come to the repentant, to the contrite, is forgiveness of sin in the gospel. The gospel also brings us a guarantee to go to heaven. Can you say that you have that guarantee? Do you have the gospel? Have you imbibed it? Have you accepted it? Have you trusted it? Do you have that assurance and peace? Guaranteed to go to heaven. How about this? The gospel produces a freedom from sin. 
Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. And when you know that he died for you, you're freed. Jesus says you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Every child of God has freedom. Freedom from what held us once in bondage. Years I spent in vanity and pride. How about deliverance from the pit of hell? Preserved by Jesus when my feet made haste to hell, and there should I have gone, but thou dost all things well. Thy love was great, thy mercy free, which from the pit delivered me. We should be praising God that we're delivered from the pit of hell. We only understood the realities of it. Jesus says about hell, fear him, that's God, who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Not me, not anyone else, but the authority himself, the Lord says, I say unto you, fear him. Why? Because he has the authority to cast into hell. But praise God, our sins have been cast as far as... East is from the west. They're removed forever from the sight of God by the precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. What else does the gospel produce? A worshiper, a worshiper. What did we worship before we came to know the Lord? We worshiped ourselves. We worshiped people. We had our idols of one sort or another, a person, a place, a thing, whatever was our idol. But when Christ comes into your life, now your, your whole viewing has changed. Your, your affections have been now drawn out to God. Paul, when he was converted in the road to Damascus, when Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you persecuted, he says, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, I want to give my life for you. I want to live for you. I want to honor you in all my ways. What else does the gospel produce? A new nature. You've got a new nature. You didn't have that nature before. You may be a good-natured kind of a person. I agree. There are persons that are more amiable than others and have personalities that are much more uh, lovable, you could say, than others, but you did not have the new nature that comes from the Lord. That's the life-changing nature. That's why we can say for a believer, old things pass away and all things become new because we have a new nature. Be sure you have that new nature, that relationship with the Lord. And then lastly, and there's many more than this, this is just a snippet of some We become lovers of God. Lovers of God. It says of the world they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Who should we love the most is God. Yeah, we love other things. We might like recreational things, sports things, artistic things, etc., etc. But our, our fondness, our greatness of love is directed towards the one who loved me and gave himself for me, we become a lover of God. Look back with me again at this text. Now, moving down to the uh, end of verse 5, it says, You know what kind of men... Now, who, who is the man? Paul and Silas and Timothy obviously had gone to Thessalonica. So he's referring to him and them as well. You became what? Imitators of us and of the Lord. Imitators. How did that happen? Did you experience like what I did before I was saved? I looked at Christians, born-again Christians, and said, I don't want to be like them. I don't like their lifestyle. 
they're corny, they're goofy, they got this kind of weirdness about it. I mean, that's my, that was my natural man's thinking. And those are the kind, the kind of born-again, well, born-again people, my brother, which I know to be my brothers and sisters later, I just felt like uncomfortable with them. The way they lived, the way they acted and thought and talked, I said, man, that's not me. I, I knew I couldn't be like that until the Lord changed my heart and, and made things different. Now, think of what the Thessalonians were like before the Apostle Paul arrived. And then after he arrives, preaches the gospel, he says, you became imitators of us, meaning me, Silas, and Timothy. But not just them, but of the Lord. Which implies that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were imitators of the Lord. And by your conversion, this is what it has done, the gospel, it has made you imitators of the Lord as well. Remember Paul in front of Agrippa, when he presents the word of God to him, Agrippa said, you almost persuade me in a short time to be a Christian. Just a short amount of time. He's right. It doesn't take a long time. You don't need to educate somebody to become a Christian. You don't need to give them 16 courses on discipleship for them to be saved. Faith's one look at Christ, one heart believing glance at him can set the sinner free. That's the power that the gospel can generate in the soul of a person. And then the transformation takes place once the conversion takes place. You've been transformed as a child of God. You became an imitator. Paul says elsewhere, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is not trying to draw our attention away from the Lord and saying, you follow us men, but be followers of us like we are of the Lord. We are ultimately and most importantly followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, take up my cross daily and follow me. Sometimes we um, don't have the right adjectives in the ears of people in trying to get them to understand who we are. I'm a Christian or I'm born again or I'm saved. That, those are true words, but for the average person on the streets, they don't know what that means. But when you say, I'm a Jesus follower, I follow Jesus, I'm a part of the Jesus revolution, if you will. Uh, the movement of the Spirit of God has come into my life and changed me, and I'm following him who loved me and gave himself for me, who dedicated his life to the Father, and I'm following in his footsteps. They became followers of Paul and of the Lord. Boy, that's an amazing, you could say, uh, expectation. How can I be like Jesus? How can I follow him? In my unsaved days, zero possibility, zero. But with the incoming of the Holy Spirit, the new nature that God plants within us, there's a generation, a germination of a new nature that has the desire to want to be like Jesus. Now, what is it about Jesus that Paul is driving at here in the context? Let's read on. In verse 7, well, no, end of 6 here. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You received the word in much affliction. In other words, when Paul presented the gospel to them, it brought... Hostility, it brought 
division. It brought persecution, trials, difficulties. How different the gospel of the Bible is than the, quote, gospel that's preached on TV or radio or in general in the pulpits across the country, in the world maybe too. You want to follow Jesus? Guess what? The road's going to be rough and you're going to have a hard time. Listen to what Jesus says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, number one. Take up his cross daily and follow me. He says elsewhere, if any man's going to follow me and does not hate his father and mother, his brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You might say, who wants to be a disciple like that and have that kind of animosity aimed at you? In a, in a fracture that may occur in one's life. Remember, Jesus sets the record straight when he says, don't think that I've come to send peace on earth, which contradicts the Christmas uh, uh, slogan that's often says, peace on earth, goodwill to man. That's a r- wrong translation, number one. Check it out in, in other translations. That's an old King James errant translation in, in that instance. Jesus sets the record straight. I didn't come to send peace on earth, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against the mother, and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. A man's foe shall be the day of his own household. Boy, that sounds severe. But following Jesus is what could and will be maybe on our path. And I think some of you may have experienced in, in your life. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're born in America that has historically been kind of a Christian nation. It's lessening big time, of course. So the persecution, in the past at least, has been minimal, probably, for the majority of us. And maybe some of us, nothing. It's like, oh, that's great. Now you're reading the Bible and going to church, and that's all they, they, they're praising you for. When I got converted, I was under some terrific stress. My mother, when I had to inform her because I came into a company of people like you guys and girls and women and men, uh, that you love the Lord and you love the Word of God and you love reading the Scriptures and you talked about Jesus and you prayed individually and corporately. I had never stepped into an arena like that. And then when the Lord saved me, I said, I I can't stay in the church that I used to be in. Matter of fact, I don't have any commonality with them. Like the Scripture says, he that remains in the congregation of the dead... That's what I was doing. I was remaining in a car. And I said, I've got, to, I've got to associate myself with people who love the Lord. And I had to tell my mom that I'm not going to be going to the Albanian Orthodox Church anymore. She goes, what? Well, to make a long story short, some of you may have heard my accounts of that, but she threatened to commit suicide if I didn't go back to church. One, day, one night, I, was at, well, I, I lived on the college campus four miles away from my home. I had a room there. But staying in that environment with with keg parties every night was not easy for a Christian. The library closed at 1 o'clock, but the parties kept going on after that. So I could only stay out in the the library for so long. And I'd come back, and it's chaos in the dormitory where I lived. And that was my life before, but now it's, it's a whole different story. So I chose to live at my parents' house sometimes as well, and that wasn't easy. I used to have to sleep with my Bible under my pillow at night. My mother, one time when she tried to, so to speak, 
psychoanalyze me through her sister, my aunt, to come and straighten me out. Um, I, I opened up the Bible to my aunt. My mother's pacing the floor, hoping like that she's going to win me back to the Albanian Orthodox Church. And, 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 and eventually my mother got so frustrated when I was trying to show my aunt scriptures about what it meant to be a Christian and you know, Jesus follower. My mother came from behind my head, grabbed the Bible, and just flung it across the kitchen floor, fuming. And I'll tell you, my spiritual flesh, if I can call it, got really angry at that point. But you know the verse that God stopped me at was, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I knew right there, I, I did not want to, of course, get in any way aggressive with my mom. I had to realize it was not, it was a spiritual power above her that was in, that was in the kitchen that day. One day I was reading the Bible again late at night till like midnight. And about midnight I heard a, a thump upstairs. And I, th- and I thought, oh, what happened? And, and, and my father was up there too. And I thought, I didn't hear any footsteps, so I figured they must have dropped something. About an hour later, this is like one in the morning, I come upstairs from reading because I couldn't read in front of my mother. That was very annoying to her. She thought I was getting deeper, deeper into some kind of a cultish lifestyle in an anti, you know, historical Christian church atmosphere that I was in before. So I came upstairs, and there my mother is sprawled out on the floor, and I didn't know if she was dead or not. I screamed. My father woke up. He came over and you know, splashed water on her and you know, got, her, got her going again. What she had done was she drank, and she wasn't a drinker, she drank a pot of a whiskey bottle and a bunch of pills because she could not take my lifestyle as a Christian and the fact that I was leaving uh, the, you can imagine, it's almost like an, somebody leaving Judaism, so to speak, and becoming a Christian. That, that was the kind of pressure that was on me. And my mother constantly kept telling me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that if you don't come back. It's not that I didn't like the Albanian people or, or even the Orthodox Church per se, but it just did not feed my hungry soul. I did not feel communion with fellow believers. So I had to be honest about where I wanted to commune with brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I did face some trials, and it made me nervous because I didn't know if my mother would go through and commit suicide. And I had to talk to my fellow elders, and one of them especially was giving me confidence. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Follow Him. He will take care of everything. Just and God gave me much grace to be able to submit to that kind of pressure and just say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to obey you no matter what. Whatever the consequences are, I'm going to obey you and I'm going to trust you for this whole matter. It turned out years later, my mother, close to dying, three months before, I went to visit her in a nursing home. I said, Mom, have you been praying? And she said, yes. I said, what have you been praying? She said, for the Lord to save me. <sighs> and I hope that was answered, and uh, that gives me confidence. I didn't put those words in her mouth. I was shocked to the hilts to hear, hear that response. But here, the, the Thessalonians, notice what it says. When you receive the word of God, he says, uh, you receive the word in much affliction, and that's what associated them with Paul. Paul's travels always in the apostles always brought persecution. In Acts chapter 5, it says they were beaten, they were whipped, flogged, and they, they depart from the Sanhedrin 
and they, it says of them, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were beaten and persecuted and they departed rejoicing. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you received the word with much affliction and joy. So contrary, doesn't it seem? If you're afflicted, you want to be down and you're depressed. No, but if you're doing it for Jesus' sake and you feel that communion with him, you have experienced what the Bible says the gospel creates in the life of a believer. To be a follower of the Lord and even under times of affliction, you can rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 52, same thing. After they were persecuted, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, Acts 13, 52. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were beaten in, by, by the jailer and, and, and the authorities there. They were cast into prison. Their feet were put in stocks. And it says, and at midnight, they gave praise to the Lord singing unto his name. Come on. Joy under affliction. This is amazing that this gospel can create that kind of following. Let's read on verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. What kind of an example are we to one another and to others around us? What kind of an example am I to my neighbors, to my unsaved family members? What do they see about me that would draw them to Christ? Or that they could say, there's a changed person. There's someone who has peace. Someone that has some tranquility and, and some satisfaction that they don't know and they have not experienced because we are the lights now of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And when people see us, they should see those kinds of changes that they almost should become envious of. And in spite of times when they were under affliction and persecution, it says that even the people gave praise. You know, I don't quite understand that. But sometimes the Bible says, um, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Even his enemies can be made at peace when we are true, truly following the Lord. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not to speak anything. There's two, two things here. It's their example and the words. The words that they spoke of their faith in God had spread abroad, but not just that, their example as well has spread abroad. Did word get out after you were saved by people that knew you? Oh, so-and-so became a born-again Christian. So-and-so got saved. How did that happen? The gospel, the gospel. And Paul's reminding the Thessalonians about the power, that the, what the gospel created in them, these kinds of desires Verse 8, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Canaan, but, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not to say anything. I have seen at times uh, where someone has supposedly led somebody to the Lord and they 
become now spokesperson for the person they're leading. Like, oh, I want you to meet so-and-so. He's a new brother in Christ. He just got saved uh, last Friday. And you tell somebody else about how this person is now saved. But here is an instance where it's like, let them speak for themselves. Let them demonstrate. Let them show that they're new creation. Don't put words in their mouth. Don't give, put ideas in their mind. It will come out of them. One thing that I love to see is, and, and I really take this to heart, when I see the Lord genuinely saving somebody, I love to watch them with, without interference to see how the Holy Spirit works in their life. Because if they do have the Holy Spirit in their life, changes are going to come. You don't have to force anything on anybody. You don't have to say, oh, why weren't you in church last week? Have you been reading your Bible? You didn't read your Bible? You don't have to get on their case. You know why? Because they become now under the lordship of Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit of God within them, and the Holy Spirit creates those desires for the things of God. They don't come naturally, but when you have the supernatural power of the gospel that you've embraced, it now changes you, and you want to follow the Lord. You want to do the things that are pleasing in His sight, and you don't need to have anybody tell you that. When I was converted, I was under the influence of a 75-year-old man He had read the Bible over 60 times. He was saved at 13, and he started to read the Bible every year through, and I met him after 60-plus years, and he had read through the Bible 60 different times. And that was a wonderful example for me to follow. But he didn't tell me, now, I want you to do what I'm doing. I just saw the example, and I said, I want to do that. I went to a Bible conference. I heard somebody quoting the Bible. And I said, that's what's lacking in my life. I want to be able to quote God's word. I want to be able to tell somebody John 3.16. I want to speak it. I want to be able to quote the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. The word of God is life-giving and powerful. It's not my words. It's his words. So I encourage you to study and read the Bible. You may not be able to quote it you know, exactly, but have enough of it at least in you that when opportunity arises, you're able to recite something that is scriptural and God will use that powerfully for his purposes. Now, verse 9. For they show... For they themselves report, that is the people of Achaia, Macedonia, and others, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Paul may have had, and he did have to leave quickly, if you remember the context from last week in Acts 17, when we looked at how the church in Thessalonians began, when Paul went to the synagogue, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures several Sabbath days, and we know from the book of Thessalonians that he must have stayed there a lot longer than the book of Acts records, which you would get it, you would assume, if you just boxed it into uh, that chapter 17, you would say, Paul was only in Thessalonica maybe three or four weeks. But the way he writes the epistle, he had been there much longer than that. So Acts doesn't record historically all of the details, but we can find other details from other portions we do in the book of Thessalonians about Paul's time spent there. But he left, and of course, if you remember, if you've been reading, and I encourage you again to read the book of Thessalonians on your own. If you want to make it a challenge, uh, read it every single day. There's only 79 verses. can be done in probably 10 or 15 minutes. Acquaint yourself with, with the book of Thessalonians. But in, here in the book of Thessalonians, Paul was anxious to know how they were doing. 
he, he was like a, uh, a mother pulled away from a child and wants to know, how's my, how's my son doing? How's my daughter doing? When you go on vacation and you leave your little one behind and maybe it's the first time or second time, you're always edgy and nervous and you constantly have, especially mothers, thinking about their little baby, how the baby's doing, are they being taken care of right, they're eating okay, they sleep in this, so on. Well, Paul had that motherly, that parenting kind of passion for, for the Thessalonians and he was away from them and he wanted to know how they were succeeding. But the good news that was that he, there was a buzz out there that the Thessalonians, there's a group of people there that have been changed, that are Jesus followers now, that love God, that are worshiping the true and the living God. Remember Thessalonica, like every other country, every other city in the then known world of the Mediterranean was locked into paganism and idolatry. So when Paul traverses these areas, he's got to present to them the true and the living God. And therefore, the idea of idols that are being made by human hands become now objects of veneration. That whole thing is destroyed. Paul is talking about the invisible, true, and living God, which was a real awakener to the audiences that he addressed. And when they got the gospel, they understood. And that, that was a drastic change from, from getting out of idolatry and following the true and living God that's invisible, that there's nothing physical that can be made. Exodus 24, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. That's exactly what the pagans were doing. They had in their mind the imaginations of certain gods, the god of this, the god of that, and then they would create one like that, and that became their object of worship. But when the gospel is preached, it creates hostility because idolatry is erroneous. It's false. Let me talk to you about the true and the living God. As even your own prophets, he said to the Athenians, says, you are all the offspring of God, okay? No statue can create, but God, a reproductive God, so to speak, through these means of, of reproduction and, and replenishing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying, is how God has grown us, and we are all classified as his offspring this was shocking news this was radically different from what they were exposed to when they hear about the true and living god now verse 10 so well at the end of verse 9 how you turn to god from idols you know when you're preaching religion and you're preaching legalism you tell your audience to turn from their idols to turn from their their, their, their worship of false and, and, uh, and heretical and sinful things and turn to God. That's putting the cot before the horse. Put God first. Repent to God. And then all of these things, if they told me I can't listen to uh, Bob Dylan and Savoy Brown and uh, all those other you know, cool dudes that I used to like to listen to, I would have said, I don't know if I want to follow this Jesus thing, you know. But God, in his amazing ways, turns us to him. And then watch what happens. The scales come off. The ears are changed, tuned into certain things that, boy, I don't like those lyrics anymore. I don't like the spirit that's coming from this or that or whatever. And so God becomes first and foremost in center stage in your life. 
how you turn to God from, I like that, the verbiage here, turning to God. And that's what we must do. We, we can't preach the law, so to speak, the letter of the law. Talk about God. Jesus, I mean, Paul classifies his preaching this way, testifying both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, repentance to God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. That was the sum and substance of his message, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you watch the changes that happen. The men bring their sorcery books, their witchcraft books, and they burn them in public before everybody in Ephesus and all kinds of stories like this. This is why it says about Paul and his fellow apostles, these are the ones who are turning the world upside down. Yes, idolatry is wrong side up. Right side up is the true and the living God. He turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. God creates servants in the gospel. I want to serve you. You should want to serve me. We should want to serve one another. It shouldn't be difficult when things come up in church life like, hey, we need some help uh, to, to do this or an opportunity to serve comes up your way. You should say, sign me up. Sign me up. Why is it that most of the work of the church... 90% of the church is done by 10% of the people. It's always the same people over and over. Others sit back. I just want to encourage you and and remind you that God has generated in you a servant-like spirit, that you want to serve the body. And, of course, you want to do it with the gifts that God has given to you. You don't want to lay them aside or, or put yourself down. If God has gifted you, work on that gift. Use it and may it multiply and be fruitful in the way in which it operates. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You know, um, back in the 70s with the Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, a lot of Bible prophecies. It's still in the atmosphere about second coming and, and, and you know, the back of the beast and uh, this and that. Uh, and sometimes we want to poo-poo that on one end and then on the other end we want to... Um, we want to uh, sort of build that up to a to almost an Id- a wrong spirit, you know, like that's everything, and, and we get down on everything that's around us, like, oh, this is going to be the end of the world. That's going to be. I've been hearing it since I've been saved, back in se- in the seventies. Matter of fact, I was listening to a little clip of Hal Lindsey preaching to uh, to uh, Chuck Smith's uh, Calvary Chapel there in uh, Costa Mesa. California, and it was all about the second coming, and he was talking about things that were currently going on, and if you've ever read the late great planet Earth, which I did in the early 70s, uh, I don't want to get into all of this stuff, but I do want to say that it is vitally important that we be looking, waiting for the second coming of Jesus. That's how it's classified. These are one of the marks of of, of a converted person that you're waiting for the sun from heaven. You're not waiting for peace on earth. You're not waiting for, 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 for Russia to, to give way to the Ukrainian war or that they're going to you know, bow their knee to America or that all of the foreign countries, the Middle East, they're going to get converted to Christianity and so on and so forth. 
If you're a post-millennialist, you would disagree with me on that, of course, because you would think that the world's going to improve and get better and be Christianized, and then it'll be prepared then for the second coming of Christ. I don't see it that way at all. I think the scripture points in a different direction. The things are not going to get better, but they're only going to get worse, as if waiting for the finalization of the Antichrist and so on and so forth, the picture doesn't look good. But out of all of that, the good news is that Christ is coming again. That should be exciting to us. We might not be looking forward to death. I agree. You know, that's kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to, I think about, you know, as you get older, you're thinking, oh, man, I, and, and I've been into the, uh, you know, when they do the, with the embalming, and it's kind of spooky, you know. I don't want you to get, have your attention go too far in that direction. But how much better, and I think the Apostle Paul was excited that he, didn't, he would rather, instead of having his body, the tabernacle broken down and die, he was looking for the second coming of Christ. And if you read all the epistles, you'll see the frequent references to the desire to want to see Jesus come again. What will that be like? What a day of rejoicing that will be when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ are raised, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, if you're not saved, I would be worried about Jesus coming today or tomorrow or next month. That's, that, that should create urgency with you to get right with God. You might say, I'm young and healthy, and I'm probably going to live another 50, 70 years. Maybe, and statistics might point you in that direction, but you can't give a statistic on when Christ is coming. That's why we always have, be ready, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. And even little ones in this room and older ones, if you're not right with God, think of that. Christ could come. Are you ready to meet the Lord? There is going to be a meeting. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead... Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come. How did they know these things? We always think of the Great Commission as when Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, teaching them to observe all things, and so on. That is a Great Commission. But listen to the great commission that was given to Paul. Listen to this. Jesus said this. I send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Wow, that's a great commission. I'm sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. No wonder the gospel created with the Thessalonians a turning to God from idols, of passing from death unto life. Now, granted that I don't think anybody here had an idol, like an idol of the ancient world, but we had various idols in some ways or another. But idolatry was everything to the pagan, to have an idol. But you too have had an idol and God turned you from that to something greater, one that you would have true affection and love for. And we're described this way. And the last thing that is given in this list of, of conversion 
identifications, you could say, or mocks, is that they were ra- uh, Jesus was raised from the dead who delivers us, delivers us from the wrath to come. What is that? What wrath is that? Well, we know wrath came upon the Jews in the temple when, when uh, the Roman emperor came in. Uh, but he, he's writing to the Thessalonians. They're, they're not a part of that uh, environment back in Israel with the temple going to be destroyed. This is talking about the judgment of God. Everyone who's not saved is under the judgment of God. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. John 3.36 That wrath will ultimately be executed against people. It tells us in Romans that we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And if you read the end of Romans chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, you would have to say, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. The wrath of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 talks about uh, those sins of uh, idolatry and fornication and adultery and drunkenness and uh, um, um, railing and money laundering and homosexual practicing God's judgment will be executed upon them and not to think that such will inherit the kingdom of God. God's wrath. Praise God, we're delivered from the wrath of God. Listen to what the hymn writer says. No wrath God's heart retaineth to us who believe. No dread in ours remaineth as we his love receive. Returning sons he kisses and with his robe invests his perfect love dismisses all terror from our breasts. His love dismisses all terror from our breasts. I'm not afraid of Jesus' coming. Matter of fact, the Bible says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because my judgment God will not twice demand once at my Savior's bleeding hand and then not again at mine. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left its crimson stain. He washed them white as snow. Gone, forever, delivered from the wrath to come. Be sure Christ is coming again. Be sure the wrath of God will be executed again. We can look forward to one, Jesus is coming, and have knowledge that the other that's coming has nothing to do with us. We are sheltered under the power of the gospel of the shed precious blood of Jesus. Sins are gone. That's why we're going to sing right now. Come on up here, musicians. Laurie and our singers here. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. There's no dread. There's no worry. There's no threat of judgment against my sins. Be very sure if you're not saved that your anchor holds and grips a solid rock. If you're not saved, please refrain from the Lord's Supper in honoring Him and respecting the Word of God until you get right with Him. And that's what our desire would be, that the Holy Spirit would work in your life, create in you these desires, and make Jesus precious to you. Let's 
all stand up and sing, Arise, my soul, arise. <laughs> <laughs>